Accelerating Careers in Real Estate with Nick Carman. This evening I'm sat with Mark Woodrow. Mark's the joint MD of Package Living. Package Living is a new kid on the block with regards to the build-to-rent sector, and it's founded and run by two former Granger colleagues and directors. In just two very short years, Package Living has a pipeline of 2,000 multifamily homes, a further 1,000 development managers, and they've launched a £100 million single-family fund with the backing of Fiera Real Estate. So Mark, I talk about chapters in our career and how the most successful careers manage to minimise those resting chapters and my guests create and seize opportunities to accelerate our careers. But no doubt we'll come on to that a little bit later. Do you want to get us started with how chapter one begins for you? Yeah, sure. Thanks, Nick. And, and thanks for asking me to, to do this. Um, yeah, I, I suppose the start for me, start of career, I suppose, is going to university and, and going to Leeds, which was kind of miles away from home and was fun. And I kind of fell into to, to choosing civil engineering, I, I suppose, because, you know, it was OK at maths and physics. And it seemed like the kind of degree which would form a, a good foundation. And, and I didn't really have a plan in terms of a career at that point. But certainly I felt if I did that and I got that kind of useful, kind of fairly vocational, I suppose, degree under my belt, that they would help me in, in the future years. So, yeah, it was about going to uni, having three great years in Leeds, cracking city, which has changed a lot now. And we're doing some work there. And it's, you know, it's a very different place now. But, but back then it was you know, a great student town. And met some great people, and and civil engineering was exactly that. It was it was kind of what I thought, you know. Utilised a lot of the things that I that I was I was okay at. Met some great people, and and got really interested in buildings and and just in in infrastructure and construction and and those kind of things, which you know I'd always had a, a bit of a a bit of an interest in growing up as a kid. Well, come on, no doubt we'll bring this up sort of further as, as we go along. But I spoke to a couple of your colleagues and sort of past sort of work, work colleagues. And one of them gave me a bit of a tip off that engineering wasn't your first option, was it? You were an aspiring uh, amateur footballer out here. <laughs> yeah, no, no, not really. I think I, think I played in uh, I think I played in one uh, kind of third round prelim FA Cup game or something that, that he's referring to. But yeah, no, I, I played for the university team and, you know, after university messed around a, a little bit in kind of part-time non-league football when I was when I was younger but that's all a bit hard work and you know the the, the little pay still waiting, and, waiting for the call up then yeah exactly I'm wondering whether you know in, a, in the early 40s that's too late for me for the <laughs> for the next world cup or not yeah no I've I've loved sport I'm massively into sport and and I think that's brilliant and try and get the family into all of that so and actually you learn so much about life and about how to conduct yourself in work and how to get projects and whether it be construction or any other kind of any other kind of task done through playing team sports so i've always loved that excellent stuff well let's then tell us a bit more about sort of where where that degree led to yeah so so i got the degree and there was no it was three straight years at Leeds. so i just felt that i needed to you know broaden the horizons a bit it was growing up in the home counties then been to leeds and fancying a bit more of the world so i went on a, a year's traveling with a mate we went to the world some well trodden some well less trodden parts of the world and that was fantastic and that just opens your eyes to everything about life and the fact that people across the world are actually you know in, in some ways very different but in some ways exactly the same we all value the same things and it gives you a really core good understanding i think to then be able to relate to people get on with people and progress so um came back from that and actually the first job was a bit you know i kind of Again, I still didn't really have a plan. The, the mate that I went traveling with who ended up being my best man 
you know, he had a plan. He had a he had a he had a job with Barclays when he got back. He we literally landed back. I think at the end of 1999, uh, he started with Barclays in the January, and he and he stayed there for 15 years. But I just didn't have, you know, I didn't have that plan. I think through the ages of kind of 16, 17, all the way to 22, I just thought that the time when you actually had to knuckle down and get a job wouldn't come. So, you know, I was there, I, I applied for a couple of jobs using the civil engineering degree because I thought that would be the best move and, and got a job with a, a local engineer, you know, designing roads and bridges and, and doing that kind of stuff, which was, uh, I suppose, the natural thing to do with that degree. You, you mentioned there sort of about having a plan. At any point, did you think further than this? Did you, I, did you have aspirations to work in real estate or was it was it hand to mouth? Yeah, in the early days, Nick, it'd be great to sit here and say it was all planned out and I had this beautiful kind of uh, picture and vision, but actually it really wasn't. I, I was really interested in exploring lots of different things and almost waiting for that thing to come and hit me and say, actually, that's what I want to do. And it was only as I progressed in the early days of civil engineering and because you know in, infrastructure and infrastructure I was working on was always to do with buildings and the buildings were always the interesting bit but they were never the bit that I was working on so I was sat around the tables looking at the kind of developer looking at the house builder looking at whoever it was who was around that table thinking I wonder what they're looking at I wonder what the numbers look like I wonder what the whole why are we doing all this why, why am I designing this road what's what's behind it and what's the commercial drivers so that was really the kind of first inklings of wanting to get into the real estate part of this well if we then jump right to sort of the present day and the Mark Woodrow who sets up a, a development company were there any clues in those earlier days of your career around sort of entrepreneurship I suppose the spark of that was still quite early in my career. So I, I with an ex-partner, I, I moved up to the northwest, li- lived in Chester, which was a great city and a great part of town. We stayed together for about a year and then split up. And, and so I was up there, um, you know, mid-20s, um, really enjoying life. I was working for Michelle, a different engineering company at that point, and really starting to think about, I just got chartered and starting to think about do other things. And my ex-partner's father ran a, a very successful local furnishing business. And being close to that and being close to that family only for a short while just gave me that little spark of, that there's a guy, you know, he'd come from very little in on the outskirts of Manchester to, you know, running a very successful business. And and they weren't particularly flashy. It was very understated, but with, with all the things that come with that. And you just start thinking, you know, it's not just about working, you know, almost kind of rank and file. It's about what, what can I create? What ideas do I have? And, and, and having a bit of vision about doing my own thing, but, but not really having, you know, at that point, the ingredients or, or really the, the professional skills to go and do it. I was never going to go and set up a contractor or an engineering consultancy or anything like that. But, I, you know, I wasn't good enough at it and, and it didn't excite me enough. But, it, but that, they were the first kind of inklings. So if we're talking about then sort of picking up the, sort of the ingredients to be able to, to do that, what, what comes next after Chartered Engineer with Michelle? Well, I, I kind of, I, I met my current wife and, and decided that, you know, if I was going to really be a success, I wanted to follow the things that were starting to nag away at me. I wanted to get into real estate. We moved back to London and I got a job as a project manager. I just felt that was the next step from engineering towards 
real estate and towards development and just being naturally quite bossy. I'm sure people you spoke to said that. Um, that it, it seemed a natural thing to do. Um, and that was great for me. So it's mid 2000s, things were flying, you know, a lot, a lot of retail led development, which I did a lot of and ended up going to work in uh, Multiplex's office, who Multiplex Development, who were then bought by Brookfield, developing and, and development managing a, a shopping centre, actually near where I live now. I live in Beckersfield near High Wycombe, which was fantastic because that was my first taste at really being, although I wasn't a true principal, at being principal side and, and being in charge of of developing an asset and starting to understand, just getting a bit of a picture around, you know, the spreadsheet, the appraisal, the numbers, why we were doing certain things, why we were making certain decisions, what which parts of this really mattered and which parts were less important. And there was a real insight into, into development. And naturally from then, someone left that business, joined Granger and, and took me across in, in, in kind of March 08. And I remember thinking, I remember asking in the interview at Granger in March 08, I said, so it seems to be a few kind of black clouds looming. What, what do we think about that? And I remember the, the guy who interviewed me said, his answer was kind of that I sort the men out from the boys. And in, uh, you know, nine months later, we came back after the Christmas break at the start of 2009 and, and that development team had gone from 20 people down to four. And so there were four of us staring at each other, looking to effectively manage a portfolio that only a few weeks beforehand, you know, 20 people were managing. There's a question that I wanted to ask you really about that transition. And it, this probably goes back a little bit then to the, the Brookfield days, because you've gone from chartered engineer project manager, and then relatively quickly then to being development manager. So lots of people sort of ask about, you know, what traits do you garner in being a project manager that enables you to make that transition to development manager? I'm going to ask a slightly different way. I want to know what sort of, if you thought there were any things that held you back, were there any sort of things that you need to knock off when you became that development manager? (laughs) I think you need to, at each step of, if you think about that as two steps, one from an engineer to a project manager, and then one from project manager to development manager, you need to get out of the detail each time you make those steps because you've always been in the detail and that's how you've been successful in the thing that you've done previously. And you need to look at the bigger and bigger picture as you come out of that because you never get from A to B with a with a large undertaking, a large project by worrying about the detail. And I find a lot of designers and a lot of consultants that I sit around the table with now, I have a bit of an insight into their life and, and what they're thinking and the actions they're taking away from that meeting. And the most successful ones and the ones that want to, you know, be very successful in their own businesses as well as do other things will be the ones that can go into the detail, but then come right out of it and have that kind of big helicopter view again and say, although I know that bit doesn't work, what about the rest of this? Does the rest of this generally make sense? Because if this is generally going in the right direction, then we can probably sort that little bit over there. And I think that's the biggest thing, because when you go client side, the risk is that you, you move um, into a development role and then you try and do the consultant roles as well you sit around the table and try and sort out all their issues as well as as well as all your issues rather than letting them do the job that you're paying them to do I think that'd be quite an eye-opener I think for a lot of people about sort of necessarily you almost want to hold on to your strengths don't you and build on that and you're you're suggesting not necessarily sort of give it up but just make sure that you're not holding on to the job you used to do right that's now someone else's 
Absolutely. And running good teams is about asking the right people to do the right things, isn't it? And it's not trying to do everything yourself. So I found at that point when I was able to properly do that, and I was probably a development manager for a couple of years before I really cracked that, I was able to sit in a meeting, drill down into a bit of detail if I wanted, and then come right back out and just let them get on with it. And that is yeah that that's the skill there is 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 allowing people to to get on with their job and not and not fussing and not trying to you know and to micromanage in that way and do you remember what you were, what was driving you at this point i asked you that that question probably unfairly about did you have a plan you know in your sort of early 20s now you're you're what sort of late 20s i'm guessing sort of you know, by this time <laughs> you know, had that matured uh, yeah, yeah, definitely had, definitely had. A, I saw that. It's, I think as soon as I moved back to London in the mid two thousands, there was lots and lots going on. It was a very exciting time before the GFC, and I then I'd got it. I'd understood that I wanted to be in real estate development. I'd understood that I wanted to be a principal, and I wanted to understand, you know, the very, you know, r- right from the financing, the funding to the to the reason why we're doing what we're doing all the way through, you know, the delivery of that. And I really wanted to, you know, have, have that kind of overview. And so I definitely wanted to work for a developer. And when I, when I joined Sora Suite and then got the opportunity first in, in, with Multiplex and, and then with Granger, that was exactly what I wanted to be doing. And, and at that point, once I joined Granger, I just wanted to, in, in the first, work my way up corporately to, to, to take on more and more responsibility at development business. Earlier, you teased us then with a bit of a cliffhanger, didn't you, about what happens between December 2008 and sort of January 2009, when the sort of dark clouds are definitely sort of closed in on, on Granger and the, and the wider real estate business. Tell us a bit more about exactly what had happened. Yeah, it was a it was a difficult time for lots of businesses, wasn't it? If we remember, you know, there were times in kind of late 2008 where people weren't sure if they're you know, if we were going to be able to get money out of the hole in, hole in the wall and, and, you know, the whole financial system was, was in real trouble. And, and we're, in a, we're in a recession currently, but it, this recession feels very different from that one. The, this recession is, you know, is mainly driven by the pandemic and is mainly driven by people's health worries. That one was like, you know, the world was falling apart at the edges in terms of what you thought and, and in terms of your view and position in, in kind of Q4 2008. And, and Granger was no, you know, Granger wasn't immune to that. It was a large asset owner, had a lot of residential property, also had a couple of other kind of, you know, it was by that point, it, it owned property in Germany and it was a big business and it had grown a lot over the previous 10 to 15 years under some really strong, quite entrepreneurial leadership from from Rupert Dickinson and the Dickinson family. And that, and they'd grown the business hugely, but, you know, that, that was a difficult period for Granger. And, you know, I remember in, November, December 08, you know, the whole business was, was called in and, and, you know, we were told that it was a difficult time and there were going to be redundancies. I, at that point, was, I think, I just got married. We didn't quite have our first child, but we were thinking of starting a family. And, you know, it was a really worrying time. And I remember thinking, you know, that I was going to be lucky to hold on to my job. And, and, and in fact, I probably was because, as I say, we, we came back in January the 1st. We'd heard rumours, but but there were effectively four of us that came back to to run a, a division which 20 people had been involved in. 
so that's a great thing and that, you know that that that's a, a negative and a positive in, in equal measure isn't it so you know the negatives were that it was a very difficult period we had to put a lot of development on hold we had to think very carefully about where we were spending our money and where we were investing further you know also selling property at that point and selling opportunities was not necessarily the right thing to be doing we weren't necessarily getting best value so it was a difficult time for the business but personally for me it was one looking back now and I didn't think so at the time but looking back now it was a it was one of the best things that could have happened for me because I managed to you know with by my fingernails cling on to my job and inevitably uh, with all of that development that you can't just put on hold and you can't just put on a shelf and come back to in a few years time there were so many things to manage I remember one of the things so Granger's obviously a, was a, and still is a northeast headquarters business and we were running at that point a small house builder in the northeast that were producing probably three or four hundred um, houses per year and I was given a you know sort of four cardboard boxes of lots of files and said right you know you're running you're you're running Granger Homes now which had about six sites in Northumberland in places I'd never heard of and I had to jump on a train and, and got picked up by actually got picked up by one of the more senior guys who was in the office that was actually the health and safety manager and he picked me up and I remember jumping in the car with him and we drove around these six sites and I saw them for the first time in, in January nine, and we, you know, there were half built sites. There were there were fully completed sites with half the houses sold. There were sites where we sold the houses but hadn't completed all of the, you know, all of the landscaping, all of the adoption works, all of that kind of stuff. So you know, and, and in some part that was quite over, overwhelming, especially in a completely different part of the country where I didn't really have any good contacts either in you know local authority or consultancy or anything like that but but you soon sort that out don't you the couple of the people that had gone had been kept on as consultants so they helped me complete those sites get those properties sold which was no mean thing because at that point you know there was hardly any kind of mortgage finance available for people buying houses and you know so so that was that was a really exciting interesting time and and you know that was the same principle for some of the stuff we were doing elsewhere in the country and and at that point I worked closely with um the three other the three other of the of the team who who were kind of introduced there and and at that point I was really still supporting a lot on the delivery side so you know that that was still working very much in post contract so so making sure yes we were getting the right planning consents but then we were you know, contracting with the right contractors. And, and I suppose the additional responsibility I got helped me to to become f- more fully formed in thinking about, you know, the earliest stage of development, uh, planning, uh, funding and design and and really helped me to, to broaden my horizons for, the, for then the exciting period which was to come. Whilst, whilst we're in, in that sort of timeline... I imagine there's quite a lot of similarities in terms of sort of maybe what you were going through then and what maybe some people are, are sort of experiencing right now in their careers uh, that, are, that are at a crossroads whereby suddenly there's maybe sort of extra sort of responsibility, you know, the, the attitude of, you know, let's sort of knuckle down, let's make, you know, let's, we've got to work through this and sort of work rates probably sort of increasing. But as with any sort of crossroads or any sort of hurdle, you sort of question, don't you, in terms of whether, whether you're on the right track at that point, did you have any wobbles? Did you have any ever thought, think, thinking, right, maybe, maybe this isn't for me, or maybe there is there is a different trajectory for me to go on? 
I don't think so. Looking back now, you know, I suppose everyone's not in, no one's infallible and is always going to doubt themselves at certain points. But because of, you know, over three or four years going from being an engineer and then and then actually working my way into really where I wanted to get to, I, I was, you know, I was really motivated at that point. I was really happy with how my career had progressed and I was really welcoming the the new opportunities you know one of the principles in in these podcasts that you talk about nick is the acceleration in people's learning not just career wise but also you know growth as as people and as and in their roles and i had exactly that at, at that point you know i was learning a huge amount of things around you know everything from development and and early stages of development to funding to to starting to manage a team as well at that point, which was really good for me. It's not something that I'd done before. And I, I just wanted to, at that point, I just wanted to, to grow and, and to, to experience all of that. Because it's only through, you know, what do they say, you know, sort of splashing around and keeping your head just above water that you really learn and, and you really find out whether one you can perform and, and, and what some of those things are all about. So, you know, that was exciting. I think you touched on something there about, you know, that analogy you just described about sort of keep just keeping your head above, above water will scare an awful lot of people off. That's not a situation or a scenario that they would look forward to. But it's definitely sort of quite a common trait I hear when we're doing these podcasts about people who have been experiencing these quickening or sort of accelerating of, the, of their of their learning because they almost go looking for it, whether they're conscious of it or or not. Yeah, I think that's 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 definitely right, and and I've heard some of the other podcasts you've done, and and I've heard people talk about that and getting bored easily and wanting new experiences and and wanting. I think I think if you want to be successful, you have to have that because life's short and and your career's ultimately short, and you need to experience as many of those things as possible, especially early in your career. And and I probably didn't experience as much as that I should have in in the first five or six years of my career. So this, that mid part of my career from when I started to where I'm now, you know, I wanted as much of that as possible. And, and I think that, yeah, that is a trait of people who are, who are driven, who, who want to be successful in that, you know, they don't mind a bit of what people might see as stress. Other people might see as excitement, might they? Well, I, I get, I get the sense we're moving into a new chapter now, aren't we? Um, sort of post 2009. So tell us, tell us a little bit more about what's happening now. Yeah, so, you know, Granger got itself back on its feet pretty quickly and Andrew Cunningham, the new chief exec from around that time, you know, really steered the business very well, very safely. He was the XFD and it was a very calm head in choppy waters around 2009, 2010. And a lot of the Granger portfolio was in London, the southeast. And London, the southeast, people remember, came back very quickly. You know, if you're Tony Pidgeley and you were, you were buying sites along the river in, uh, at the start of 2009. So, you know, that that was all happening very quickly. And actually, you know, Granger from then 2011 onwards became a very positive place to be in terms of, of a business that was going in the right direction and being successful. And in parallel with that, which is very relevant to, to what Ed and I do today, the, the build-to-rent industry was was starting to become a thing. But Homes for Rent has been around since the Victorian age and, and, and before, so it's not a new thing. But that institutional investment into residential was just starting to become a UK kind of sector and a UK idea. A lot of that brought over from America. 
and you know Granger was perfectly placed to to take advantage of that and to really be at the vanguard of that because Granger as a business had lots and lots of, of regulated property which it had in-house management expertise it had a development team that I worked within that was very capable of developing residential buildings and property and it also had a strong investment team as well and that combination of investment development and operations is what you need for a successful build to rent business and and it was perfectly placed to do that and and actually you know a lot of the guys that are doing that are doing build to rent now none of them was well placed in the, at that starting point as Granger was and so it enabled Granger to really you know be at the forefront of that. Given what you said then, and particularly around sort of Granger's expertise, it's, you know, it's 100 years old, it's the largest sort of uh, residential sort of landlord. How different was build to rent back then? Or, you know, sort of, did you know what you were sort of getting involved in and what it might turn out to be? I, I, don't, think, I don't think you did, Nick. I'd, I'd love to, again, act wise after the event and kind of, uh, <laughs> and, and, the, uh, and try to pretend that we did. But, you know, I, like a number of others, was, was fairly cynical. At the start, you know, what we were doing, you know, we were building yeah, apartments in London and houses for sale, right? And we we wanted to do that. And that's the thing we saw as making us most money and, and being successful for the business. And when Build to Rent came along, people just thought that was a reaction to a bad market. You know, 2008, 2009, lots of excess property on the market, wholesale bulk deals being done. And that was a reaction, but actually the market would go back to the norm and we would all be into private for sale again a couple of years later. And one of the people who could say they definitely did see that was was one of my inspirations at that point, which was a guy called Nick Jopling. Um, so whilst both Andrew Cunningham started that journey and Helen Gordon, the current chief executive of Granger, certainly saw that and, and and were very clear with with the with the markets in terms of you know Granger being a PLC they had a very clear message for the markets and that was absolutely the right thing to do and and absolutely the right strategy and that that's really what underpinned Granger's success but on that board at the time and coming into the business in 2011 was a guy called Nick Jopling who who a lot of people know you know a very big character a very inspirational guy and someone who absolutely saw that, you know, he walked in in 2011 and said, you know, build to rent's the thing. Multifamily housing is what it's called in America and we should be doing it and we should be doing more of it. And this is what the future is for Granger. And that was, you know, not many people got on board with that. And that took me a while. And it was probably not until we really did our first proper bespoke build to rent deal in, in London Road Barking in conjunction with Boeig in that must have been around 2012 that we that we really started believing that and we really started thinking that actually this Jopling character actually had a point and he was right and and by that time the whole business had you know got around that and people understood that and one of the great things about Granger for that and why it was such a good message and it was absolutely the right thing to do was it involved the whole of the business all of a sudden instead of development doing their thing and then selling their property, investment doing their thing, you know, buying investment property and selling investment property and operations doing their thing. All of a sudden we had a cause which involved the whole of the business. And that was really exciting for everyone in the business. So all of a sudden, as soon as people started to believe it, you got that whole synergy and and it really it really took off. And from 2012 to when I left a couple of years ago and you know Grange is still going great guns really strongly under Helen's leadership. It is, 
you know, it's been a really exciting place to, to have been and a huge amount of the build to rent industry today, you know, they're running funds, they're running operational businesses, they're running development businesses like, like Ed and I are. Lots of the Granger alumni are scattered around different parts of the market, having been involved in, in what was a really exciting time. So, you know, before before we got started, I asked to, to speak to a couple of people who knew you quite well. And um, one of those guys was your consultant PM on one of, one of these early projects. They said that their very sort of earliest impressions of, of Mark was that he was always building a business. And it didn't matter that he was he was within a larger sort of corporate structure. It always felt like he was he was pushing something forward. He was driving something forward, something that he wants to be really in the center of. Um, and part of me wants to ask in terms of whether you were aware of it at this time and, and really just how how important a point was this then for your career to be within Granger, but also to be right at the start of, of this build to rent generation? Uh, I, I think I think where we where we sit today and, and some of the success that we've had with Package Living, which I'm I'm sure we'll come on to, I think it's pretty fundamental. You know, creating understanding this sector being involved at the very yeah, early stages and being right at the heart of of growing that it's fundamental and it and it allowed it allowed Ed and I to have that kind of you know that springboard into you know package living and people believing what we were saying and believing we could do it and and believing that it was you know that that we knew what we were talking about so it was yeah it's absolutely fundamental I, I think one of the things that I note from those early days and and you know we went from you know the barking project that I talked about then through you know 3,000 properties 3,000 homes plus thousands more that we would have touched and looked at and and either bought or not bought or transacted on or, or, or developed ourselves you know, we, we would have done that. And, and we we were effectively, because we had that first mover thing, we, we were making the industry up as we kind of went along. So, you know, that some of those early buildings, we were saying, should we have some, so let's call it amenity space. Should we have some amenity space in this building? What, what should we have? Um, and people were saying, I don't know, this is 100 apartments or this is, you know, Clippers Key in Manchester, 614 apartments, right? And we did that. That was the largest largest scheme outside of London that anyone had even thought of and we were talking about that in 2012 and we were saying so what does the amenity space look like in there and we you know we're picking numbers out of how I don't know 5,000 square foot 8,000 square foot I don't know I don't have a feel for it and you know we'd have meetings like that and and that's really how you know what people think of today of you know what what is the right kind of amount of space and that's something really basic but but that flows through everything from specification um through to all of some of the the mechanisms within some of the forward funding agreements that we were doing, the relationship both between funders and developers and also developers and contractors, which is, you know, which is nuanced from from private for sale and and is slightly different. And all of those things were kind of, you know, it wasn't just Granger, there were there were two or three others and, you know, MG were doing it very early and and some of the, you know, essential living and and those guys. But yeah, we we were together as a, a, a kind of small cohort, I suppose, which is then dispersed across the industry, making up, <laughs> and I'll use that word in a looser sense. We're, we're making up what is today 
you know, almost taken as read to be, well, that's that's the way it's done. That's the way it's always been done. But it's only the way it's always been done because in 2011, when no one had done it, we said, well, why don't we do it like this? And I suppose that's how, you know, new new sectors are forged, isn't it? Yeah, we took, we sort of mentioned Ed a couple of times building up to this and, and no doubt we're going to sort of talk about him and package living quite a bit, quite a bit um, more detail. But I did speak to Ed and he... Uh, he remembers sort of your, you know, sort of Mark and Ed's uh, very earliest days, not quite as harmonious, <laughs> sort of harmonious as, uh, as you made out. Uh, and he's, he tells a really good story. I'm sure he'll tell it much better than I do. That yeah. He was in the investment team, wasn't he? Yeah. And yeah. at the time he was working on we, great... We, we, didn't, we, we didn't particularly like them, Nick. I, I, I was speaking off the cuff, obviously, but but we, we I kind of looked at those guys and thought, well, they don't really know how these things are put together. So, <laughs> you know, they talk about it in a very easy way. Oh, we're just going to go and, you know, forward fund this £300 million development with this developer and, you know, not, not have a clue what it's got planning or not. So, yeah, there was always a bit... We started from that point. <laughs> well, he, so he tells he tells the story, and he he says that sort of at the time he was working on Granger's biggest deal outside of London, and he was told he had to go talk to this Woodrow fella in development. Yeah. And apparently, he, he tells the story that he sort of he walks he walks into an office, um, uh, into a, a boardroom with you, and sits down, and you uh, uh, you rather rain on his parade, uh, and tell him it's <laughs> tell him it's a no, uh, and he says he left that meeting thinking what a tosser, uh, but. That deal went ahead, didn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it did. Absolutely. So he was, he was right. Uh, yeah, and completely, completely. Well, we talked about, you know, by that point, I wasn't a cynic about the industry, but I was very much a cynic about some of the, some of the relationships that we that we were looking to to forge. Because again, with it being a new, a completely new industry. And, and Ed was a huge part of this, right? So what, why Ed and I do what we do today is because that's what effectively we were doing within Granger. We were, we were, we were driving a lot of the acquisitions and, and, and development of that business. And yeah, so, you know, there were some of those developments where I would go and meet the developer and I would go and see the contractor if they had one. And I would, and I would look at, you know, some of the plans and see if they got planning. And some of that, you know, when you're used to developing your own sites and, and being your own direct development managers, then, you know, that can get quite personal, can't it? And it can be like, well, we wouldn't have done it like that. And oh, it's not quite how I would have done it. And in those early days, you know, I was pretty grumpy about that. I was pretty like, well, that's not the way we would do it. That's that's not good enough. That's not going to work. Um, you know, you're being spun a yarn by, you know, the the people you've been talking to. I don't think that's going to uh, that's going to happen. And, and there was a lot of that. We talked a lot at that point, And we would have talked openly about this, about that positive tension, right, between the investment team who who wanted to go out and grow that portfolio the development team who were absolutely fixated and we needed to be on making sure we we're getting it right and getting the product right and getting it well built and then the operations team who then had to manage it and the, and all of those teams had those touch points and that was you know where I was talking about that synergy between the business and all of it working together that the other side of that was that all of it was trying was was wanting to make sure that their bit worked and that that was really powerful at that stage, and and that meant that we sat around the table and disagreed about stuff, yeah, you know, a fair bit, and that and that was good. And and you know, we both sat on the operations boards, we both sat on uh, investment committees, and all of that kind of debate is really healthy for a business. And and I encourage that, you know, thinking about my own developments, thinking about our own teams, thinking about the business that we're growing. You've got to have that, right? You can't have yes people. You can't have people who sit around a table and look at you and go, yeah, yeah, I think that's a great idea. You have to have people who speak their mind 
and I always did that within the Granger business, and I think Ed did as well. So you know, it was a yeah, it was a it was a relationship that we started at that point, and and we were definitely work colleagues before we were mates because we didn't really necessarily have you know it's a bit younger than me i had a family at the time you know there, there would have been the cohort that went out for a few drinks after work and i did a bit of that but but not as much and so you know we were definitely work colleagues but before we were mates in that sense well i think we've sort of teased our, our listeners now enough haven't we about sort of what's, <laughs> what's coming on so why don't we um kick us off in terms of what happens in 2018 so, so 2018, yeah, Ed effectively was going out the door and, and founded Package Living, actually, in, uh, yeah, 2017, 2018. And really kind of, again, you know, we went out for lunch and he said, mate, I know we've been doing, you know, all of this with Granger for, for a long time now, but I, I'm doing this. And I said, that's really cool. That's really exciting. And, and I, at the time, although I talked about those entrepreneurial kind of sparks, I hadn't properly engaged with that thought process myself. I, I had I had underestimated, I think, how valuable. And and if you're in a corporate for a long time, I, I, I never, you know, it's not like I joined Granger and said I'm definitely going to be here ten years, which I was. It just got, you know, I just got the new challenge and I got promoted and it got exciting every couple of years. But as soon as that kind of flagged, I thought, yeah, this is a real opportunity. And actually, Ed and I should have had that conversation or, or should have made the move that we ended up making, you know, in 2013, 2014, because it would have been, you know, because three or four years before, you know, we would have been even further you know, on, on from where we are today. But yeah, so that was great. And, and he went and did that. And actually, you know, that the op- the opportunity to join him at that point wasn't there and the, and the package living business hadn't grown in the, in the way that it's grown today. So I actually left set up my own consultancy did some consulting into package living as a business until package living grew and became big enough for, for both of us to come in. And, and then and then we did, and that was really the start of, of the business as it is today. And ultimately what we did there was effectively be, be backed by Palmer Capital, who, who sold to Fiera Real Estate. So Fiera Real Estate are one of Canada's uh, largest investment managers, got about 130 billion pounds under assets under management a figure that blows my mind of you know but at the time it was still palmer capital which was a you know still had a billion under management but a smaller more entrepreneurial business um, and one which is very much led by ray palmer and, and alex price again inspirational people that you meet through your career and and ray they both looked in our eyes and and they'd already backed ed and and they said you know, they saw that Ed and I would work well together, that kind of yin and yang of investment and development and both having a bit of operational experience and thought, yeah, this this looks good. So um, from, you know, the early part of 2018, you know, the package living as, as we know it today had, re- had really kicked off. How easy a decision was that to leave the, the safety and security? And in, and in some ways, sort of almost your uh, legacy at, um, at Granger because you've been involved in build to rent from the very, very earliest stages. Yeah, it's... It, it, it was a hard decision to make when it when it actually happened it, it, it was fine I think you know I'd kind of got again I'd, I'd got excited about the fe- what the future could hold and so staying at Granger was as soon as you know I had that spark of of those ideas and and kind of thought about where that could go at that point I was excited by that and so it was the right thing to do to to leave and that, and that business has grown you know, more and more successful since I left. And a lot of the people that I work with there are, are, are going great guns. 
so yeah, it, it, it was hard like any big career decision, but, but I never, you know, 99% of me thought I was doing the right thing, which is the usual kind of brash overconfidence that normally <laughs> makes me make mistakes as well. But uh, I was that sure because, uh, you know, at that point I was excited. And I also knew that if I was making the wrong move, I was making it for the right, right reasons, right? So, you know, I wanted at that point in my early 40s to go, I'm going to have a crack at this. And actually something that I wasn't necessarily going to talk about in this session um, my my brother had done a very similar thing. So so my brother had been, you know, followed my footsteps in engineering, ended up actually owning and running part of a, a software business within construction. And they'd done very well and sold to, a, you know, sold to a, to a larger player in their sector. And actually, you know, he'd made a bit of money. And at that point, when you're three, year, you know, three years younger, kid brother, you know, does something you know entrepreneurial and successful like that you know that that whole competition hormone kicks in doesn't it you think right i need to i i can't i can't be retiring without having a crack at that um and so yeah that that was that was definitely one of the one of the pushes um all right really good stuff well i want to sort of keep talking about sort of learning and and some 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 parts that are struggling because i think you know these these are the two sort of really big sort of tenets of of a accelerating career so now, what what were the major struggles then in those very early days? What what hadn't you encountered you know, in in this in this job that you, that you had in previous? Yeah, I think I think when we started when when in in those early you know a couple of years ago you know nearly three years ago now we were starting out we had one main asset we had very little cash coming into the business we had the support of then the Palmer now the Fiera staff behind us but there was only Ed and I. And that was really hard because you were going from a big corporate where you had teams of people working for you, you had teams of people supporting you, and you had to recalibrate really quickly. You know, if you wanted to anything from stuff around the office to organizing your diary to, you know, anything that you'd been used to having that support within a corporate environment, you were then doing yourself, which, you know, you needed to to relish and needed to want to work hard and, and work those 12, 14, 16 hour, 18 hour day, whatever it took to get all of those things done, because no one else was going to do it. And you couldn't delegate it to anyone. So that was a real challenge in those early days. And, and 2018, the market was strong. It was difficult for us to find opportunities. And and by the end of 2018, actually, we had some success and we'd managed to, you know, we'd managed to, to find a couple of opportunities. But in those early days, it, it, it was tricky. And I think that, you know, it was, yeah, it was, it was a difficult time. And I'm sure that would have actually forged the business plan and, we will be stronger because we, we it wasn't plain sailing and you know, whenever you set up a business it's a risk and it wasn't plain sailing to start it was difficult to find those first opportunities before we really got motoring we've been talking now sort of in the past haven't we and building up to to the present day so why don't you just give us a quick sort of let's say sort of stamp us exactly where where package living is right now so so we've come a long way from those from those kind of early days. So we sit here today, we've got just over 2000 um, homes in, in our multifamily pipeline. And for non, plenty of people who are quite rightly non build to rent geeks, multifamily being, you know, apartments in, in towns and city centres. Um, so that's a really good pipeline that we built. We're on site with our first scheme in Milton Keynes, which is great in partnership with Invesco. 
we've got sites in Newcastle, Manchester, and, and two or three others in the pipeline. So that's really good. And we've actually added a couple of other parts of the business over the last year, which has been really exciting. So as well as, as growing that portfolio, we've formed and started a development management business, which is working with public sector and private sector landowners where you know maybe there's not an opportunity for us to buy land or or to work with the fiera funds to buy land but they would still like the builder and expertise to progress you know some some areas of those sites so we've worked with you know london boroughs that have got a couple of thousand homes that they want to bring forward and they want to do you know a phase of 500 for for build to rent We've worked with large real estate owning PLCs who want to, you know, maybe redevelop a bit more mixed use within within their portfolios and would like to do some build to rent through those. And so that's great. And then, and then the final thing is the is is what we launched is bringing uh, John Ivory in, Jonathan Ivory, who's come in, used to run Atlas in the UK. So it was a kind of fellow early first mover in in the build to rent industry atlas were a big player in the in the kind of mid part of the last decade and and john's come in to to run that and and we've just launched that fund which is which is really exciting really exciting stuff what about next well i'll probably ask this in a sort of two-pronged attack in terms of you know what if Let's talk about sort of what's coming up in in the immediate sort of future, and and then I'll ask you sort of you know in terms of why, how big do you think this could be as a sort of as a question B. Yeah, I um, I, I suppose in the immediate in the immediate term, you know, we'll put a lot of energy into the into the single family housing fund that we've launched. So that's cornerstones with Fiera. We'll look for co investors to come into that. We're partnering with house builders to deliver. Target is a thousand suburban homes you know single family housing is is exactly that it's 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 renting suburban houses across the country so you know that's going to be a big focus for us over the next 6 to 12 months obviously we don't take you know and we've got a team working on on the multifamily pipeline and and the development management stuff so that that's a big focus and and then you know where where we can go is is going to be in some ways synonymous with with where multifamily and where built to rent goes I recall, I kind of go back a little bit to to the student housing days. We started to look at student housing in 2010 at Granger, and we felt that quite a lot of the cities had, had been done. We felt there was, there, was quite, there was a bit of saturation in the market, and we weren't necessarily going to be successful doing it. And I think that, you know, there will be waves of build-to-rent that go like that in, in certain cities. So people were saying, well, there's lots of build-to-rent happening there. But actually, if you look at the residential home numbers and you see that only two percent of the overall you know rented homes in this country are owned by institutions you start to understand really the depth and and breadth of that market and i think that package living should and is really well placed to to really capitalize on on what is still a nascent market and and what can still grow you know hugely you know tenfold hundredfold across the country over the next 10 years so I think that, that gives me a really nice segue then in terms of sort of how big how big do you see packaged living getting? How sort of how ambitious uh, are you and Ed? Uh, yeah, really ambitious. Yeah, really ambitious. You know, Ed's probably you know Ed's probably the more ambitious one out of us in terms of you know wanting to go into 
and do new things and, and, and go into new sectors. I'm probably, you know, just from the nature of my background, I'm probably a little bit more steady. Want to make sure that we've that we've cracked and we've we've really mastered of what we're doing. But we're, but we're both extremely excited by the opportunity. There's a lot of good people. Um, that we brought into the business and some of those that that I've talked about I'm really keen to grow the business through bringing in people you know really bright people in in the kind of mold of where I hope that I was within consultancy businesses that want to work for development businesses I'm really keen to give people that opportunity because I think they come from a really solid background and can help you know, help grow the packaged living business. And we've already done that with some of the development managers we brought in. So yeah, as I say, the business is, can be as strong as, as, as the sector grows over the next 10 years. And, and all of the commentary of all, of all of the big agency houses will tell you at the moment, that's where, you know, that's where people want to be. And so we're, we're keen to progress that and, and, and progress as far as we can along, along that line. Excellent stuff. Well, Mark, thank you very much for that. You know, I really appreciate you know, the, the time you've spent you know, taking us all through that. And I have no doubt that people listening to this are going to be really watching, whether it's with sort of interest or sort of intrigue in terms of sort of how, how big sort of package living uh, can expand and what happens then with the, with the single family home sort of projects. So thanks again, mate, for giving us, giving us up that time. Thanks, Nick. Thanks, thanks for asking me to do it. This podcast was brought to you by McDonald & Company, the leading real estate recruiter. To discuss any matters with Nick Carman, please contact him via the email address in your show notes. And don't forget to subscribe to receive the latest episode as it's released.